the old, old story, I was thinking of my mother as I was uh, singing those words, because she loved to tell the story of the gospel, uh, especially to my brother Sam and I. And uh, that's what we want to look at this evening, is the story of the gospel as recorded in the narrative that Matthew gives us in chapter 26 of Matthew. We'll be looking uh, primarily at verses uh, 36 through 46, the period of time that Jesus spends in prayer in Gethsemane, but I want to read beginning at verse 17 because this uh, really fits together as a unit and the opening verses will uh, set the stage as it were for the text that we'll concentrate on. So let's hear this uh, wonderful portion of God's word to us this evening. Matthew chapter 26, verses 17 through 46. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. They were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes, as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, 
My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is such a profoundly meaningful and moving text that it is, uh, it is with fear and trembling uh, that... Uh, I attempt to speak about it. We, we are given a glimpse here uh, in verses 36 through uh, 46 of our text. We are given a glimpse into the most intimate, powerful prayers uh, of our Lord Jesus. He is, of course, a, a person of prayer. He was a man of prayer throughout his ministry. We frequently read of him praying, uh, praying many times for others. In uh, John chapter 17, we have that wonderful prayer that he prayed for his disciples and for us, uh, which would have come before, uh, before this scene in Gethsemane. This is a very different kind of praying than we see him praying anywhere else in the Gospels, isn't it? Uh, so, so I want us to try to reverently... Uh, Follow him in this and, and seek to learn from him in this crucial, very crucial, uh, brief time uh, that is so important, not just for him, but for us. What can we learn from this passage? There's so much we can only uh, skim the surface here, but I want to I just suggest a few things uh, for you to perhaps uh, think about. Uh, more later on. Uh, I, I want to note first that, that this passage, Jesus' example here and what he does, what he says, surely tells us that sorrow and grief are not in and of themselves wrong. They are not sinful. And in fact, this is evidenced throughout Scripture. Listen, for example, to the prayers in the Psalms. Psalm 6, I am languishing, my bones are troubled, my soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Later on in that same song, I am weary with my moaning, every night I flood my bed with tears, I drench my couch with my weeping, my eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Or this from Psalm 31. 
I am in distress, my eyes wasted from grief, my soul and my body also, for my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Or Psalm 77, when I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. In fact, the Bible has has so many prayers like this. There is so much of lament in the scriptures that it's identified as a genre in itself, as a type of literature in the Bible in itself, lament literature. There's a whole book given over to laments, uh, poetically uh, beautiful and at the same time heartrending, the book of Lamentations. Uh, these laments like this are found in historical narratives and prayers and prophecies. So the Bible is affirming that grief and sorrow are not sinful in themselves. Now, it is true that like any human emotion, they can become occasions for sin. Okay, my, my grief and my sorrow can, can be an occasion for me to become bitter, uh, to rage, uh, to become hopeless and nihilistic in my thinking. There, there, there are wrong ways to respond to sorrow and grief. But in and of itself, the emotions of sorrow and grief that you feel from time to time are not sin. And in fact, I would argue that, that the sorrow that you feel, the grief that you feel, the languishing, to use the words of the psalmist here, that you feel from time to time can actually be occasions for your growth in godliness. How can, it, how can your, your grief... How can your sorrow be an occasion for you to grow in Christ-likeness? Well, I think there are a number of ways that that can happen, but, but let me just give you a, a few that came to my mind. One, one, one certainly a profound way to, to respond when we, when we are suffering, when we are sorrowing, is to, to take our suffering to God. Not to hold it in, not to deny it, not to suppress it or repress it or whatever term you want to use, but to take it honestly to God. And we have the testimony of Scripture that he wants us to do that and that he hears us when we do that. To go back to Psalm 77 again. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. What he means by that last phrase is that day and night, he seeks after the Lord. And he won't give up. Okay? He won't stop seeking the Lord in his time of sorrow. This will lead at times to another godly use of sorrow, I think, and that is to move us to confess our sins. It's often in a time of sorrow and grief as we're crying out to the Lord that things come to our own minds, things that we need to confess before him, things that we need to get right with someone else perhaps. And so that can, that can be a wonderful way that, that our sorrow leads us toward godliness. 
A vital use of your sorrow as a believer is to be able to grieve with others. Scripture commands us to do that as believers, doesn't it? Weep with those who, who weep, it said. And, and it's a mark of Christ-likeness when your sorrow, your grief, can enable you to truly grieve, to weep with others, like Christ wept there with, with others at the tomb of Lazarus. Now, sorrowing with others will naturally lead you then to intercede on their behalf, to pray for them, and to, to enlarge your prayers in the midst of your sorrow, in a sense, to, to encompass the sorrows of others as well. The godly use of grief and pain will also, uh, will also be a means that, that can awaken in you a, a deeper longing for the new heavens and new earth that are promised to us. Now, one thing about sorrow and, and grief, loss in this present earthly life, it, it forcefully reminds us that there is something wrong in this world, that there is sin and that there is sorrow and that there is pain, and, and that we as believers look forward to that new heavens, that new earth, where sorrow and sighing will be done away with. Uh, sorrow can can wean us from our idolatry to things of this world, to a longing for the world to come. And, of course, ultimately, that longing for a believer is a longing for God himself. So our sorrow and our grief can deepen our love for God and draw us more passionately and fervently to to look after him, to seek after him. Uh, Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians when he's comparing the suffering of this life to the joys to come. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. Psalm 16 Verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 27, one thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Oh, there are many other ways that we could think about uh, having, it, using our sorrow, our, our grief, to, to draw us to the Lord, but, but I hope that's enough to, to sort of get your mind thinking in this direction. And certainly as Jesus comes to Gethsemane, uh, his thoughts are turned to prayer, aren't they? That's the topmost thing on his agenda is to pray. But as he comes to prayer, we're, we're a little perplexed, perhaps, by his, his words there in verse 38. My soul is very sorrowful even to, to death. This great grief that he's, he's feeling, we've just talked about how sorrow and grief can actually can be a form of blessing. What is, it, what is happening for Jesus here? 
Is he losing faith in the Father here somehow? Somehow he's, he's becoming fearful of uh, perhaps the physical pain that he's going to undergo, the, the excruciating death that he's going to endure. Uh, is he dreading the mental anguish that will accompany this experience? Uh, how is it that, that he seems so troubled? And, and then we read of, of great heroes of the faith who, who face great suffering and even death with, well, at times even with peace and a sense of joy and, and trust. What's going on here? Well, I think, I think Jesus' words themselves point us to what's really happening here, and I think this is important for us to get. Uh, most of the time when people think about Jesus' death, they think of the physical aspects. One, one of the unfortunate side effects of, of movies and visual representations of the crucifixion is they, they, so, they so catch our minds with, with horrible visual images that we begin to think that well, there's where the terror lies for Jesus. It's in the physical. And that's not the case at all. Jesus has never shown any fear, any, anything but courage in the face of danger. I don't think it's the physical suffering that lies before him that he's thinking about at all. But in fact, he does tell us what he's thinking about. Look again at at his prayer there in verse 39, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. What is that cup? It's not the cup of death. Okay, it's not mere physical death that's in view there. Jesus' language is always heavily steeped in the scriptures. There's very little that he says that does not come out of the Hebrew scriptures. And he's taking this imagery of a cup right out of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, that image of a cup is a sign of God's judgment, of his wrath poured out. Psalm 11, for instance, the Lord hates the wicked and the one who loves violence Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Psalm 75, it is God who executes judgment, for in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. In Jeremiah chapter 25, the Lord tells him, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. And he then goes on to list all the nations that will be forced to drink from the cup of God's wrath. If they refuse to accept the cup from your hand to drink, then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, you must drink. For behold, I begin to work disaster at the city that is called by my name, and shall you go unpunished? You shall not go unpunished, for I am summoning a sword against all the inhabitants of the earth, declares the Lord of hosts. And this is carried over into the New Testament as well. For instance, in Revelation 14, we're shown an image there of an angel who's proclaiming 
If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, pulled full strength into the cup of his anger. It is that cup. It is that sorrow that Jesus is looking at. It is the sorrow, the anguish, of the one who is completely and utterly righteous, becoming the sin-bearer. You know, it's impossible for us to begin to understand what that means. Because we're sinners. <laughs> we've sinned. We, we've sinned against others repeatedly. We've sinned against God. But Jesus never sinned. He is perfectly holy and righteous. And it is beyond our ability to imagine, to, to try to envision the, the revulsion of his very being against sin. And the idea of taking upon himself sin of incurring the just wrath which that sin deserves from his father whom he loves, that is the most terrible ordeal beyond anything that any human being has ever faced. It is no wonder that we are told elsewhere that Jesus wrestling in prayer during this time sweats blood. It's the cup of your sin and my sin that brings upon him the wrath of God. No wonder. No wonder he is exceedingly sorrowful and troubled. But he wins the battle, doesn't he? He wins the battle. Jesus has always been fully committed to the will of God. We've heard him say it over and over again. John chapter 4, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John 6, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And so in this circumstance... When he's faced with the horror, the terror of taking sin upon himself and doing God's will, he's always going to put God's will first. Always going to put it first. And so this is a very sincere prayer that he prays. Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. That's the prayer of our Lord in this night. Was he heard? Was he heard? You know, sometimes we're tempted to say that God hasn't answered our prayers, or God doesn't answer our prayers. God always answers the prayers. He never fails to answer the prayers of his people. He is not going to fail to answer the prayer of his son.
And indeed, we're told in the book of Hebrews, exactly that. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 10. Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. That's got to be the scene that, that he's talking about, doesn't it? And he was heard because of his reverence, because of his holiness. If he was heard, what is the answer? The answer was no. The answer was no, the cup is not going to pass. It's implied that Jesus hears that in the second time he prays down to verse 42, where he says, Oh, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. The answer of the father to the son is no. I will not spare you. And so the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, although he, that is Jesus, was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. What an incredible thought. I can't imagine to what exactly that means. He learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. It's the Father's will that the Son suffer. And so he says no. He says no. And because of that, because he says no, and because Jesus says yes to the will of the Father, that we are saved. And so the writer of Isaiah says, uh, decades, centuries before, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And yet, he goes on to say, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. You catch that? That there is a victory on the other side of this suffering. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Well, what can be our response to such an incredible, incredible giving, yielding to God's will? Well, surely the first response is to be thanksgiving and trust. Paul affirms this with his words in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He says in Romans chapter 5, While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Do you, get, do you hear that? Do you hear that? Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, 
We've been declared just. We've been declared righteous on the basis of what he did, not on the basis of what we did. If that has happened, then much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. You need not fear the wrath of God. You will never suffer what Jesus prayed that he might be spared here because he suffered it for you. That is such a monumental reason for thanksgiving and praise. And then united with Christ by faith then, doesn't that become then that source of strength, that Christ in us, as Scripture says, that enables us to overcome suffering? And so the writer of James can say, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why on earth is it good for you to have trials? Well, it's because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. If your Savior himself learned obedience through suffering, do you think you don't need it? Do you think you are exempt? No, James says, this is exactly the way you're going to, to grow in your faith, to become steadfast in your faith. And let steadfastness have its full effect, he says, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If you want to be perfect, you want to be full-grown in Christ, it comes through overcoming suffering in the strength of Christ. And so in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And surely, surely another response that we make to Jesus' example and to Jesus' work, his accomplishment here, is to, is to seek God's will above all else, right? And that's what he prays for here. And that's what he taught us to pray. Some of us pray it every Lord's Day. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth it is it is in heaven. What does that mean except that we're committing ourselves to God's will? Paul says to us in Romans chapter 12, By the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And John promises us in 1 John chapter 2, as we saw some weeks ago, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Abides forever. What can we say to these things, brothers and sisters? If Christ has done so much 
for us, then surely as we come together around this communion table this evening, surely part of what we are doing is saying yes to God's will. I don't know what that holds for you. I don't know what it holds for me. It's undoubtedly the case that in a fallen world like this, it means suffering at times, as well as joy. It means sacrifice as well as pleasure. And so when you, when you hear the invitation to, to this table, this, the Lord's table, remember it is the Lord who suffered for you who extends that invitation to you. And he has given all for your salvation. There is nothing left for you to accomplish. He has done it all. You can add nothing to what his, his work has done. But it, it elicits a wholehearted response of gratitude and commitment. Our gift to him, our gift to him is to love him and to pursue his will in all things. Let's pray together. Only Father, we confess that in and of ourselves we are unequal to this task. Even, even our obedience to you must be done in the strength that you supply. Even our faithfulness, the faithfulness that we, that we promise, even that is dependent upon your faithfulness to us. And so, Lord, we, we have every reason, every reason to be wholehearted in our commitment, believing that you enable us to live for you as you have called us to do. Because you have, you have done it all for us. Uh, help us to be seized by that anew, Lord, and to rejoice in your goodness and your grace toward us and to commit ourselves anew to being your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.